Welcome to a new episode of my Dear Kitchen in Helsinki podcast. My guest today is postdoctoral researcher Thea Kortetmäki from the University of Hyväskylä, Finland. And we talked about food justice and its relation to climate change mitigation. The global food system, and especially the current industrial agriculture, has adverse effects on climate change. In return, climate change threatens global food security. We discuss these connections and tensions, both globally and in the context of Finland. At the end of the episode, Kea has a question for you, and we'll be happy to receive your comments on the social media platforms. As always, special thanks to my dear friend Ufuk Ejman for the sound editing. Hi, Thea, and uh, welcome to this uh, podcast in- interview, and thank you for accepting to do this interview. Um, today, we're going to talk about food justice and uh, its connection to climate change and climate change mitigation. Um, and we're going to talk about it first uh, in general terms, and then I want to come back to especially the context of Finland in the end. But first, before we dive into deeper, can you uh, introduce yourself a little, your academic background, your research interests, and so on? Uh, thanks for having me here, first of all. So I'm Thea Kortetmäki, and I'm a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Jyväskylä. My own academic background is in philosophy, especially environmental and food ethics and justice. And in addition to that, I have done for some years empirical food system studies on just uh, just and uh, transition and sustainable food systems. Mm-hmm. Okay, so before uh, in in previous episodes, in some of the um, interviewees, we talked about uh, food sovereignty in some cases, uh, but we never talked about the term food justice before. So. Uh, can you, for our listeners, can you explain what food justice is and also how it is different than food sovereignty, but also giving your own definition of food sovereignty one more time for today's listeners as well? Yeah, so food justice, uh, well, basically uh, it concerns how just our food systems are, and this uh, boils down to the fairness of the distribution of different benefits and harms related to food production, consumption, trade, and so on. And justice in the procedures uh, where we make decisions about how how food can be produced and sold and so on. Um, So it's also about decision-making. And finally, it's also about kind of social-cultural equality. And um, in a just society, divergent different worldviews can exist uh, and cooperate kind of peacefully uh, with showing respect to each other and still kind of making decisions together. So food justice is a very broad notion um, and involves many issues regarding fairness, rights, uh, workers' uh, position and food security, for example. Um, I would say that food justice has kind of very... um, broad and systemic and institutional orientation and its aim um, as a movement is to reform the current food system. Uh, Compared to this, food sovereignty often is uh, depicted as a more radical orientation and as a kind of very bottom-up movement that aims to uh, not so often actually transform the existing system or reform it, but rather to create an alternative um, food system where kind of this uh, power and right to determine your own food system is at the core of this uh, uh, new system. So um, I don't see them as opposed in any ways. It's mainly about different kind of points of emphasis and orientation because in food justice, what we also discuss a lot about kind of decision-making related justice. And there, of course, this idea of food democracy and possibility to participate in making decisions about food systems, deciding about food systems in deliberative manners rather than leaving everything on the markets. I think that they are very kind of similar issues, but these different points of emphasis 
and different orientation and perhaps a bit more kind of radical and movement based uh, origin of food sovereignty makes them a bit different um i'm more uh involved with food sovereignty and i say involved uh my readings and uh, so far my discussions have been more around food sovereignty so uh, even for me food justice is is rather new so and i'm seeing it a lot in uh for example, US-related discussions, food justice, uh, whereas food sovereignty, even though it should be global, it's more uh, discussed in the global South uh, point of view, even though I'm, I'm, for example, advocating that we should also discuss it in global North uh, aspect as well. But is it is it really, uh, is food justice really so much US-based as my understanding, or can we say that it's actually now a global uh, yeah, uh, you are totally correct about this uh, ori origin um, issue. So that they come from uh, kind of north and south southern parts of America, and that's uh, I think that's one reason why they have remained distinct because uh, it's also a matter of kind of uh, not merging your ideas into other thinking, but to kind of keep keep them and self-determination of your own thinking and vocabulary is mm -hmm. one of the issues. But yeah, uh, originally food justice uh, was uh, coined um, or established in the US movements first, um, but it has spread after that to some extent to other, other parts of the world, especially um, Western world. I'm I'm in no way an expert of what happens in the eastern part of the globe. It would be interesting to know too. But but now we have a food justice discussion also in Europe, and here it is uh, strongly connected to, for example, social justice, climate justice, and environmental issues. Okay. Yeah. Um, now to be to be able to continue talking about food system and especially its relation to climate change and so on the, the first thing i have in mind is to establish uh, what is the real goal of the global food system today well basically uh, i think that the existential justification for the global food system is food security so that it provides people the opportunity to access nutritious, safe, and culturally adequate food. food. Food security is the basic objective of any food system. But, um, of course, if you think about the global food system, it's a very uh, market-dominated system. And it's uh, in this sense, it's uh, quite uncoordinated, at, at least regarding these kinds of uh, objectives or goals. So uh, I would say that there is no kind of real commonly agreed goal um, for the global food system, uh, even though the researchers say that it should be food security. And therefore, actually, I think that global food system is occupied by many different sorts of actors with very different uh, goals. And um, one more point is that if you emphasize the word global, so what is the uh, real go goal of food system that is global in nature, here my answer would perhaps include the notion that um, globality has kind of emerged as an attempt to maximize the economic efficiency of supply chains, distribution, uh, specialized distribution of labor and production, and also the aim to maximize the freedom in our consumption and variety. Mm -hmm. Because without global food system, we certainly wouldn't have more than 20,000 products in our markets. Yeah. Okay. So now com coming to the effects of uh, food system. Now, how does our food system now uh, affecting climate change and vice versa? How does it, how does climate change affecting? And, and where do uh, environmental climate and food justices meet? And where do they create tensions? That's a very good and uh, complex question. So I try to I try to keep it short. But first, first of all, regarding how our food system affects climate change, um, of all human-made climatic emissions, 
at least one fourth or and up to one third is related to food system activities. So it is one of the most significant sources of climatic emissions. Um, on the other hand, climate change itself threatens food production, food security, and creates new risks and also um, not just risks, but versions to conduct conditions of production in many parts of the world that have traditionally been very uh, good agricultural places. Because, for example, increasing uh, heat waves, um, draft precipitation changes, um, this all will kind of um, undermine the previously great conditions for food production in such areas. So it threatens our food system and food security in many different ways. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, regarding this uh, intersection between cli climate, food justice and environmental justice, well, basically there is the uh, common core because climate and environmental justice uh, definitely require that human-caused climatic emissions are reduced significantly. And food security, which um, in my view is the most important single matter within the question of food justice, requires the same, same um, reduction of emissions significantly. So in this way, these all go hand in hand. However, there are numerous ways in which emissions can be reduced. And the choice, choices regarding these measures make difference. So actually, uh, the ways in which we re reduce our climatic emissions as a hu humanity may be unjust in many ways, in environmental, food, or even climatic terms. So um, therefore, therefore, this kind of interlinked nature and resolving the climate change challenge um, tends to create many tensions between these different aspects of justice. Mm -hmm. So for me, um, when I, when I uh, listen to your, especially the effects, how food system and climate change are affecting each other, it looks like a, at the, in its current stage, like a vicious circle. Uh, and, and about the uh, intersections and the tensions, uh, it's like, I think the way the way to think about this is to requires a lot of maybe understanding of how uh, these uh, complex systems work and affect each other, so that we don't do point uh, interventions because we need to understand how each of them is going to how one point in any of these uh, in points will affect the other things as well. So the, under, the systemic understanding, I think, very important in that sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's, it's uh, central for creating and identifying good solutions. And I think that in addition to this systemic understanding, we need to um, emphasize uh, thinking, um, not just kind of think uh, globally, act locally ways, but actually thinking at all possible levels, which of course is very demanding. But one very basic example of this is that um, within food justice literature, for example, one common solution is um, the relocalization of our food systems. And it has also been suggested as one way to get a better control of the environmental impacts of your production and thereby kind of uh, help reduce environmental impacts in that production. And this, um, in many cases, uh, to some extent, uh, may be true, but at the same time, relocalizing the food system means uh, adverse livelihood impacts on distant places where the food has been previously imported. Mm -hmm. So there are always uh, local and distant impacts, and these both should be taken into account. And that's, of course, one point where we definitely need researchers who study these things and help us understand them. Yeah. Um, now, in one of your um, uh, articles, uh, you were talking about structural injustice. 
Now, how do you define structural injustice, especially for our listeners, and how does this fit in the food justice and climate change conversation? Um, structural injustice is a phenomenon where we have um, injustices that nobody can be blamed for. So, um, in a way, uh, structural injustice results from kind of some impact and overall aggregate impact of all sorts of normal and daily activities that we as humans do without any bad intentions. Um, and these activities as such are considered acceptable, morally uh, right and justified and normal, not at least not wrong in any particular way, but still as a whole, they actually create and re reproduce various sorts of injustices. And this is also a sort of vicious circle because it's really hard to point any single point where you could make a correction and it would correct this kind of injustice. And since it is also kind of ethically very complex to understand that we have injustices that uh, are not clearly somebody's fault. Yet someone should do something to them. Mm-hmm. It, it's very interesting that the, the thought of it's nobody's fault, but then because normally, if you just very in very very basic terms, if you think about justice and injustice, okay, there is someone doing or or some community or something doing the injustice, and then you go to that and you try to make it right. Uh, but when you're thinking, okay, there is no single single entity to blame and and then how do it how do you move forward it gets really complicated because uh it it i think requires a new understand new kind of understanding of justice injustice and to move forward i mean to make it right uh so yeah i mean it's it's when i especially read your your article on that it it i I mean, it really forced my thinking a lot. So how do we do, do this? I understand myself that even though I didn't maybe think about it uh, that that well before. Yes, it's very hard to say, okay, this person or this community or this thing is the uh, is making all this injustice. But then how? How do we go forward? Yeah, that's a good good and tricky question. But I I, I think it's also one of the, Uh, questions that help us address the climate climate change challenge and food justice challenge together. Because uh, in this structural injustice, the basic idea about our responsibilities for correcting the situation uh, emphasize that we should not seek those who are to be blamed and then say that they, they should act. Rather, we all find the way... Uh, Um, of acting together and when we for example think about this discussion about climate action in food systems there has been a lot discussion about the experiences of blame especially mm. among farmers for example also among consumers uh, as a result of this news about climatic emissions uh, of certain food products and dietary choices and so on and so on. And we should, uh, here it's really difficult to switch your thinking, but if you can switch it and understand that these news are not about blaming, they demonstrate the problems in our system. And we all participate in the system in different roles. For example, as consumers, as NGO members, as workers in certain communities and so on. And through these roles and participating in this system, we all kind of are together responsible for trying to change it. And and having and admitting this responsibility doesn't mean that you are to blame for something. I think uh, this this question of blaming is also important in a way that Um, in some cases also in, a, in the traditional understanding of justice, injustice and blaming and, and trying to make right with this blamed entity, uh, there are also some sometimes we, we just throw the problem into to this person's or to this entity's hands and we think that we are now done, okay, we, we are making it right and it's going to be okay. But when we actually share and we understand 
each one of us or each uh, each community or each entity's uh, responsibilities and and change our understanding this way i think we're also maybe uh, becoming a bit more uh, how to say constructive criticism and in, in a way maybe it's better to continue this way because then we can otherwise we'll just continue blaming each other and then nothing else is going to be done so that's what i'm thinking yeah yeah i i agree totally and i also think that um uh, this kind of new thinking about our responsibilities could have some really empowering potential because I think that, uh, to me, one of the problems of uh, this time in uh, com uh, countries like Finland and many industrial Western communities is that uh, they have become very highly uh, individualized. And culturally, and it's it's you alone who is acting or not acting, and so on. And for example, it can create almost paralyzing uh, effect when you think that there is this there is horrible climate change and horrible injustices. And now I, as a consumer in a market society, should. Uh, um, resolve these problems by making uh, responsible choices in consumption, and it's it's a really paralyzing idea when we think about this uh, environment where we need to make our consumption choices. And it's um, I'm not saying that consumption wouldn't be important, but it's at least for me it's empowering to understand that consumption is only one thing. There are and can be many more important things and by kind of um, putting yourself to some sort of collective action can really be much more than the sum of its parts and create much greater momentum and therefore empower yourself and give it the sense that you are doing something to change the situation. You are not alone. Okay. So... Considering, if you could try to consider then uh, what kind of actions uh, can be or should be made to address and to move forward, uh, not just to address, but to be able to move forward. Uh, can we say some of the things like uh, in the consumption side, for example, increasing awareness, but also uh, somehow, as you say, empowering uh, all kinds of groups um, including uh, the ones who are disenfranchised uh, and somehow make them work together but giving uh, trying to find the right tools maybe especially to 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 give these people rights and to voice and and things like that so what do you think about that like the tools or yeah. to move forward um yeah, I, I think there are uh, numerous ways and there is definitely no kind of silver bullet that would do the trick. But um, I will kind of give a couple of examples that I have encountered in my research and discussions, for example. Uh, one one way of thinking this is, uh, of course, through policy making, and I think that food should be food is political, definitely already, but it should be uh, repoliticized more strongly. And in alongside this, participatory inclusiveness kind of can be. Um, improved in many ways and we could for example there are numerous uh, successful experiments on kind of citizen panels or community panels especially on kind of municipal or regional food governance mm -hmm. so that um, th this kind of citizen involvement already is an improvement and what we do and can do in schools for example is amazing Mm -hmm. And there we have the new generations where we could both kind of improve participation. We have now done uh, several initiatives how students are um, engaged in uh, developing more climate smart school meals and solutions therein, for example. And this also... When yeah. you say for students, which age are we talking about? Uh, we have collaborated with students uh, from 10 to 16 years. So it's a diverse, of course, it depends on age, what is the kind of proper level of talking about these things. Mm -hmm. um, but this involvement has been really motivating for students and it also builds this awareness. 
because of course awareness is uh, also very important for you to know what kinds of things are good and improve the situation mm-hmm. and regarding this we have uh, we have quite much kind of um, misunderstandings about how food system works or what are the most important sources of environmental impacts and so on so awareness raising uh, is one example and uh, i would say that also also in in countries like finland uh, we could and and should question the discussion about food that often is reduced to taste and price. Mm. So in Finland, especially, for example, this culture of valuing cheap food very highly is is very problematic. But there are many customers who question it. And um, making making your arguments, if you think that food... um, food price should uh, give a fair share to farmer. You can make this visible and send this message to retailers and those big companies uh, that we have in Finland here. And also call for greater transparency in their practices, because that often also, if you need to make your um, practices and their impacts more transparent, it um, simultaneously kind of, uh, erases some of the worst practices. Mm-hmm. This question of uh, aware, increasing awareness and also uh, inclusiveness uh, is something that I'm thinking a lot about, uh, especially in the question of when, uh, I mean, my background is in participatory and co-design. I'm originally a designer. And um, I I didn't question it then that much, but now I'm questioning more. Like when we when we open a call to say, let's do this participatory, are we re-reaching everyone? When we prepare, when we make the tools for the participatory uh, processes, uh, can we can are we reaching everyone? And are we really able to include everyone? That's a, that's a bit of a question, especially for me. Um, seeing in many cases uh, the lack of uh, maybe immigrants, let's say, or some communities in this. Uh, but I want to come. I'm going to come to this in a minute. But but uh, I think the question of participatory uh, or or participation or inclusiveness is also in itself when you dive into comes with a lot of uh, questions itself. Um, but you already started talking about Finland, so I want to come to the situation in Finland now. Um, so what are some of the vulnerabilities in Finnish food system? And you can also explain what we mean by Finnish food system, maybe, to make it a bit more understandable. Yeah, uh, the Finnish food system uh, basically uh, consists of, uh, first of all, food chains, those uh, chains or cycles of production, processing, transportation, retail and consumption of all the food products that uh, we eat. But it also includes those, for example, economic, political and sociocultural um, drivers that influence how food can be produced, sold and consumed. So it, it is not only about this for, from farm to fork. View, but also also factors influencing influencing um, those processes, and of course, even when we talk about the Finnish food system and we focus on what happens within uh, our national borders, um, Finnish food system has a kind of global linkages. Definitely, we import lots of raw material and lots of food food also so but basically it's this picture of what happens within Finnish boundaries and kind of keeping in mind what are the kind of output impacts to other people and planet elsewhere as well so how how just is the Finnish food system then can you can you highlight most important justice issues and injustices in Finnish food system yeah, and actually, I also realized that I kind of I just uh, defined the food yeah. system without going to the vulnerability issue. So, yeah, uh, because vulnerability is of course um, a bit different thing from justice. We could have 
system that is basically quite just, but very vulnerable to different uh, disruptions, and it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be sustainable in long term. So uh, regarding these vulnerabilities, I think that uh, the greatest problem perhaps is that um, many Finnish farms are kind of at the verge of economic viability. They are just getting the livelihood, but nothing more. So they don't have any kind of buffer or adaptive capacity to do actual changes there. And in addition to this, the average age of Finnish farmers is close to 55. And only a third of, uh, sorry, less than a fifth of farmers are under 40 years. Hmm. So farmers are generally uh, quite aged. And this is a challenge for continuity in farming. And also our kind of supply chains, especially vegetable, fruit and berry production, are very dependent on um, short-term foreign labor. Mm-hmm. This was uh, discussed during the COVID pandemic first yeah. wave. And it was, yeah, the res- results or the problems that relate to this uh, dependency were were raised by then, and it's also an issue of social justice because the, um, even though I hope we don't have much of what would be called slavery, still the working conditions and salaries and such for those workers are, are not fair. And I would say that these are the two kind of very big challenges as the uh, system as a whole. But when we think about um, justice, uh, I would say that uh, we do quite well compared to, for example, the United States. Because when I started reading about food justice, um, the literature was mainly about the US situation. And it's, yeah, it's simply horrible. Uh, so it uh, ter- ter- to modern slavery and such situations are very common. In Finland, the uh, situation is better, but the problems um, concern especially the viability of farming and the livelihood and adaptation challenges of farmers, as I already said. Mm-hmm. We also have food insecurity and it has become a normalized phenomenon. It's not just something that happens when we have a sudden economic crisis, but we have uh, norm, normally people on bread lines waiting for waiting for uh, charity-based food aid, um, which is really problematic. And then we, of course, have consumption patterns. Sorry. These bread lines also increased since last year uh, because of the COVID. I mean, it, one of them is very close to where I live and I'm seeing it getting longer and longer, especially since last year during, because of the COVID situation and, and so on. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was uh, really bad. And it's also really kind of uh, tragic uh, that those people who are already kind of in such a bad position that they rely on food charity, uh, for, uh, they also get more exposed to COVID-related risks because they have to wait for hours to get food and visit small small kind of uh, rooms and so on. So it's kind of um, agglomerating vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So I would say these issues are, are perhaps the most um, serious food justice problems in Finland, in addition to the basic fact that uh, Finnish dietary patterns have very problematic impacts on humans and non-human life elsewhere in this planet. Yeah. Um, now, in uh, if we talk about, want to talk about a bit more like um, policy level and decision making. In this level, uh, do you think the connection? in the context of Finland. Uh, Do you think the connection between food system and climate change are addressed or at least addressed enough or at least even discussed enough? Um, I'm happy to say that the situation has improved uh, drastically in the last couple of years. Before that, it, it, it there was basically just some public discussion and some some kind of initiatives of the forerunners. Mm-hmm. But now we have the strong momentum and we have this uh, Finnish climate food program that is now being uh, kind of created 
to be be the strategy for this kind of work. And I have quite high hopes for this process, and it has it has um, increased awareness, and it has also been, to my knowledge, quite inclusive of different viewpoints and perspectives, which is very important. But in this way, I I think that. The situation is getting better, but definitely it's not kind of sufficient or just mm. yet. And we still have, uh, there is really much uh, power into markets. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't have markets or market power, but we still have so much market power that uh, uh, in addition to this kind of uh, cultural paradigm of consumer freedom as being one of the highest values and this availability of uh, diversity and variety at maximum and at as low prices as possible and so on. So uh, we have to learn about how to make food political. And one problem here is that we have really strong kind of interest groups and people defend their own interests and kind of collaboration and thinking in this systemic way rather than just thinking from your own viewpoint yeah. is still kind of something to be learned. Mm. Um, now, my next question is also very much related to my own uh, my own uh, research preparation. Um, who are marginalized or left behind by the food system in Finland? Um, and especially these marginalized people, how do we include them uh, in the discussions? I mean, some ideas or a path to move forward. Yeah, uh, actually, it would be very interesting to also hear your your reflections upon this, uh, whether we have similar or very uh, different views. But, uh, well, basically, um, people who are in different ways... Uh, Low, low resourced or unresourced so that they lack for example um, social social capital uh, monetary capital cultural capital um, to kind of participate and get their uh, voices heard one good example of course uh, of these kind of basic groups that we already know is is the low income households because the situation often is that you have to struggle so much with your kind of daily survival that you simply don't have any resources or energy to try to find out how you can participate let alone do that participation you are just trying to survive so that's uh, one basic group but um, and of course in this term for example those people who are on those bread lines uh, it's really hard to imagine how they could have uh, mm-hmm. kind of resources for participating but in addition to that we also have for example immigrants an increasing group where i think that especially this issue about kind of um, well of course ha- having resources but also knowing about our kind of institutions decision making culture and kind of uh, different practices and those informal things that influence very much whether you get your voice heard or not mm-hmm. so um we have these very uh, tricky questions and i think that one solution of course i think that we can never get all the people heard and that's also not necessary there are always some people who are satisfied with others making the decisions but what would be most important in my mind would be to actually design and experiment new ways and forms of participation so that to find out what works for these groups and one interesting finding in this respect uh, actually as a result of pandemic um, in our own research project was that we realized that now that we were forced to make our uh, group interviews through um, internet systems it was actually much more inclusive because earlier we have had meetings in uh, the capital city And then you can imagine that busy farmers 
from uh, central, let alone northern Finland. They have no chance of using two days to travel there and back and participate in some one or two hour discussion. Now they are able to participate. Some even participated while doing their field work from their tractors. So this is a kind of promising example of new, new, new forms to create inclusiveness. But I would also like to hear if you have some thoughts about this kind of marginalized groups yeah. and inclusion. I mean, I certainly uh, agree with the bread lines, first of all, uh, which is also for me, as I said, I, I'm seeing it uh, physically increasing and all. And also I know that uh, from, I can't remember now uh, her name, but uh, there is the book, The Rise of Food Aid in Europe. Things like yeah, Tina Silvasti. Yeah, I'm trying to get a hold of that book as well, uh, because that's also not just talking about Finland, but in Europe as well. So that's uh, one thing. So these bread lines are one thing. And also, as I said, immigrants uh, for me, I mean, uh, there are, in, in, for example, in different um, Groups, let's say, um, I'm going to give some names here, like Dodo, for example, uh, when they have uh, interesting this uh, kind of uh, workshops and, and events, they have some foreigners, but they are mostly some mostly people who are already interested, maybe like international students and so on. So they are already interested, and they're going to find wherever they go, uh, they're going to find some groups that are going to help them get more active. But then uh, there's a whole group of people um, coming from very different understanding, uh, very different cultures, uh, who are not maybe so used to participation. Uh, and, and they just have their, for example, I mean, there are all these ethnic uh, Middle Eastern Turkish uh, shops uh, in, in Itakeskus. There are people who are only buying from them, from those places, and not even so much getting into the Finnish uh, markets, let's say. Uh, so how, why do this happen? And how do, we, how do we let these people the possibility of uh, consuming locally, for example? Because having, having some local uh, food system, uh, even if it's very active, doesn't mean that everybody is, everyone physically close to this is going to be able to get to that, there, there can be, are there any cultural or social barriers, maybe even language barriers in, in Finnish case, for example. I mean, I had problems with, with Reco Network, for example, because uh, it goes through uh, Facebook, so very much written, and it's all Finnish. So even though my Finnish is uh, re relatively better now, it's still for me, not that much of a easy conversation level. So how do I myself, and I'm, in, I'm a food entrepreneur, I am very <laughs> much in food discussion, but how do I even get myself into that uh, is a question. And also one thing that I've been thinking, especially uh, when I was thinking a lot about food sovereignty is, is the right to have rights. Like in order to be able to have a right to decide your own food, your own food system, you have to have a right to have rights. So, for example, let's say refugees, what happens? I mean, how much right do they have so that they can have the right to be included in these discussions? So these are the people. And one other thing that I didn't think before so much, but uh, but now I'm thinking, especially um, one of my latest um in one of my latest interviews, it came up when I asked this question as about small farmers. Uh, they are, uh, my, my guest Galina Kallio was talking about how they are, the small farmers are being marginalized. They are the people who are already trying to make things different. And as they are doing it, as they are trying it, they are marginalized. I didn't think so much about that point of view before. And I'm also now myself very much involved in Omama food co-op. So I go and I observe, I talk. I understand now more also the production side as well. Um, so these are the groups right now that I have in mind. And it's, it's very, and this is a very diverse group as well. So it's, um, so one idea I have is to go, especially uh, in the consumer side, like immigrants and, and so on, to go into their lives and uh, 
I don't know, their fridges or, or their, their relationship with food to understand their relationship food may be one way to start to find creative ways to include them and somehow make uh, collaborative interventions together to the system. This is these yeah. Yeah, that's very kind of uh, interesting. And I, I think that one, one example that you raised actually um, gives a good idea that in addition to perhaps the potential of internet-like solutions where you can participate from all around uh, the, the world and all around Finland, we, we also should go to places where those marginalized people are mm-hmm. and act together. So it's, it, uh, it's not of great help to open open a room somewhere and shout out that now we have this all-inclusive space if everything in that setting kind of uh, yells the Finnish traditional kind of way of doing things instead of being sensitive to different uh, approaches and ways. So go, going to different places and yeah, le- learning about these different cultures, it, it could have a great potential also in increasing awareness. Yeah, and also especially uh, not to not to try to bring all these people together at first, but instead having this one-to-one, very almost intimate uh, questioning and just talking about food in its own setting, like in their kitchen, maybe in their home, looking at their cupboards together, um, and having it as more of a dialogue a conversation as maybe even storytelling can actually bring out uh instead of asking so what are your problems with food system or with food instead of that just talking about their relationship with food and their activities related to food in a more uh, telling each other story kind of um setting i think can um bring out things that you would that wouldn't come out uh when we just directly ask so what is your idea of uh because not everybody actually is actually themselves trained or even thinking that way but when you i'm thinking of a way to create a dialogue so that without so much uh, themselves maybe understanding they will bring out these issues talk when talking about just their lives and Yeah, their relationship with food. I don't know what yeah. it is. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I think it does. It's actually, it's kind of part of uh, sociocultural food justice to let people express their concerns regarding food in a way that is natural to them mm-hmm. so that they don't have to kind of get themselves to some kinds of food system talk or something that is uh, is uh, alien. But to talk, for example, in these daily sur- surroundings precisely. Mm-hmm. And also, I'm thinking there can be some things that people may not really want to say if you just directly ask, uh, but it may come out if you actually break the ice and uh, maybe it's not going to be direct, but under the under the lines, it's going to mean actually what it really is. So uh, some people can be even, I mean, honestly, I my, my own income was affected by COVID. So my, my business got affected. So I am now thinking a lot more when I'm doing my food, uh, not for my customers, but at least for myself, I'm thinking a lot about the price of the food, yes. And maybe some people can may not be so easily express this. They don't want to be, maybe, I mean. So these kind of things, hard to talk about, hard to admit or hard to say out loud, may also come out. And these are the most important things, actually, that are affecting people's lives. Um, So, yeah, this is a way of... um, And then, of course, not just analyzing, but then once we see how do we uh, create interventions together... And uh, yeah. just me creating an intervention, <laughs> but especially with these people, how do we include also them in the intervention phase? Um, so that is a big question. But now it's becoming <laughs> a lot more. <laughs> <talking. laughs> but um, but this was a very uh, nice. Uh, I mean, I think this is also the most that I talked <laughs> in an interview. <laughs> so thank you for that too. Um, but these are my questions in general. Um, 
do you have any final words or comments yourself? And uh, what would be, what is a question that you want to ask to the listeners uh, to, so that they think further after listening to this episode? Yeah. Um, well, first of all, thanks. Uh, I, I really like this dialogical part as well, because there's all, always also much I can, I can learn from different insights and approaches. Um, but uh, what I would like to say and ask is uh, to get shortly back to this idea that our responsibilities for food justice uh, come through different roles that we occupy uh, in the society. And I would like to uh, listeners to ask from themselves, what roles do I occupy and what could be my role in changing the system? Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. And uh, I I highly urge people to think about that and their, write their opinions uh, in any platform that they listen to this. Um, we can have the discussion on Facebook or uh, especially YouTube version of this. Um, it's harder to get a discussion going in Spotify or, or IT, <laughs> but I have, we have different platforms that are also very open to people commenting and starting discussions. So I hope they do. Um, and thank you again uh, for the interview. Um, I, I still have a, a few uh articles that I found from your ResearchGate page that I want to read, um, but especially the, the justice, as I said, the justice, uh, social uh, injustice, and also nobody's fault uh, uh, article was, was really interesting. And uh, I don't know if you want to share it with, um, or if anybody's interested, maybe I can let you know that they want to, be re- they want to read that article yeah heavy to be honest for me at first (laughs) some of the first pages i had to read several times but then i got to i I got to the thinking yeah so (laughs) yeah it's quite philosophical but anyone who is interested in reading my work um can freely contact me i love that and ask for the pieces if if they are not openly available Mm -hmm. in the internet yeah, and there will be some links that you want you will uh, provide in the YouTube version, in the description of YouTube version of this uh, interview. So they can start maybe with that and then uh, continue. But thank you and um, have a lovely spring day. It's really nice out there. So thanks for having me. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you want to know more about the blog behind this podcast, check out www.mydearkitchenandhelsinki.com and find it also on Instagram and Facebook. Have a delicious week!